Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. It's summertime, and for many families, that means road trips. I remember fondly getting into the back of our Dodge Monaco station wagon. My dad loved to drive across the Midwest, especially along historic Route 66. From Chicago, we would make our way out of the big city and head through the cornfields to Springfield, Illinois. And then, over to St. Louis, where we'd see that magnificent arch. All those memories came back watching the Great Muslim American Road Trip, which premiered July 5th on PBS and is currently streaming online. The hosts of the show are a millennial couple, Mona Haydar and her husband, Sebastian Robbins. I'm Mona Haydar. And this is my husband, Sebastian Robbins. Hey, babe. Hey, here we come. We're on the road for three weeks. Yeah, you think Route 66, you think Heartland. Taking time out of our busy lives as parents, educators. We're taking back the narrative. And managing my music career. Bonjour, I'm Mona Haider. To follow the Muslim thread woven through the fabric of our country. Muslims have always been part of America since the colonial era. And we're reconnecting with each other along the way. What a miracle it was to meet you and to start our life together. Should I do kiss you and hug you? <laughs> You're so awkward. <laughs> we are taking the great Muslim American road trip. Mona is a Syrian-American who grew up in Flint, Michigan. She's a spoken word rapper who came of age like many young millennials during 9-11. And she has a lot of interest shaped in part by that experience. She's an activist, and she uses music as a form of resistance. She's also a wife and a mom raising two young kids. I met her six years ago at a peace conference for Muslims and Jewish women. She was pregnant at the time and in graduate school. She was facilitating a workshop, sharing how she uses lyrics and poetry, spoken word, as a form of resistance. She also shared how she and her husband, Sebastian, learned a lot about tackling bigotry and just having conversations when they set up a free coffee and donut stand outside a Cambridge library in the dead of winter of 2015 with a sign that said, Ask a Muslim. That outreach earned the couple national attention, in part because it was a reaction to an unprecedented wave of anti-Muslim hate crimes targeting hijab-wearing women known as hijabis like Mona. Now, instead of answering questions, they're the ones learning and introducing viewers around the country to everyday American Muslims living in the heartland. Hey guys, this is Mona and Sebastian. They're traveling down Route 66 and they've stopped in Albuquerque to meet you all. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for letting us visit. We know nothing about robotics. This so, much. So we, what, what should we know? What are you guys doing? In each episode, we hear different voices and perspectives. 
At one stop, a young woman approaches to share how Mona's music video, Hijabi, made an impact. Like, I was, I'm, I was born in Kansas. <laughs> when I saw your video, it made me feel like I had somebody there. Like, it, I felt seen. Like, I'm obviously not a hijabi, but I do understand, like, some of the... And I also am, like... Covered up or not? Yeah, that's my... That was my favorite... I was about to pull that up. That was my favorite line. <laughs> I loved that. That was the covered up or not, we all... That don't, was my, don't ever take don't us ever, for granted. Yeah, I loved that line. That made me, like, giddy. I, I loved that line. Covered up or not, don't ever take us for granted. All around the world, love women ever shaded. between the famous images of Muhammad Ali and the interviews of everyday folks gathering in community, viewers are reminded that this is also about the journey of a couple looking for reconnection. My husband and I, we just got so busy with our kids and I was in graduate school and my music kind of changed my life and everything got so full and busy and we kind of forgot about us for a little bit. And so our anniversary is coming up and we're just trying to take a little trip to, I don't know, hang out with each other. Well, it definitely has the light features and sounds of a reality show meeting a travel log. There is an unmistakable mission. There seem to be so many negative portrayals of Muslims and Islam without really any sense of who Muslims really were. Uh, and, and, you know, the idea of, getting beyond the headlines uh, captured my attention. The idea that we you know we need to tell stories that aren't just the, the very few stories we see in the headlines that are news items about terrible things happening around the world, but who are Muslims and what is Muslim culture and you know what is Islam? So that just was an idea that was percolating. That's Alex Cronomer. He's the film director and the co-founder of Unity Productions Foundation, a nonprofit media organization founded with fellow journalist Michael Wolf. I spoke to Alex by phone the week the film premiered on PBS stations across the country to learn more about the casting decisions, the behind-the-scenes challenges, and how the interest in representation of Muslims in Hollywood is changing. Alex Cronomer. Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. It is a pleasure to have you on, and I'm excited to talk with you about this new documentary. Tell us about the couple, and why did you choose them? You know, when we first had this idea of doing a road trip, the question was, who would be it? You know, and initially we thought, you know, we're thinking of a single person who's going to go. And, and then we realized that whether it was a man or a woman, we'd really be only getting half the story. I mean, the idea is seeing America through the eyes of an American Muslim, but the eyes of a woman and the eyes of a man can see different things. So that was when we kind of got the notion we needed a couple to be part of this and to do this. You know, we really wanted this to be real. You know, we wanted it to be people who really wanted to take a trip were, were interested. And, and they were somebody coming out of COVID lockdown who were really uh, needing to go on a trip and also needing some time with each other. They've, they've been busy with their careers, with their children. Were the kids with them? It sounds like if this was supposed to be a second honeymoon, maybe the kids were not there. Their children didn't come, mainly because they wanted to preserve the privacy of their children. The film will largely be accepted in a positive way. But in this divisive country that we live in, there's going to be no doubt 
some negativity, and they didn't want their children to be exposed to that. And uh, they had felt that they had grown apart a little bit. So part of what they were hoping to have happen was, you know, spending time together, kind of, you know, re get to know each other again, as it were. So we thought that that also would provide a some story, uh, a quest, a meaning, a reason for them to go on the trip that would make for good television. So Mona wears a hijab and she's a hip hop rapper. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet her years ago, and she has this really welcoming, radiant personality. And I remember she was um, someone who was just absolutely comfortable talking to strangers, which I am too, and I love it. Tell me a little bit about Sebastian. Sebastian is a really interesting guy, very deep, and they were a perfect foil for each other. Mona is effervescent, you might say, in how she talks and how she connects with people, and uh, Sebastian um, processes the encounters a bit more. He's an educator. He was a, a, a principal of a school. He, he taught in schools. Uh, he's been an executive at this foundation uh, called the Lama Foundation. It's kind of like an interfaith street center where he met Mona. And he's now into uh, working on sustainable farming and kind of has helped launch, you know, many farms around the country into sustainable farming techniques. You know, he's an interesting contrast to Mona. I mean, Mona, you know, dresses impeccably all the time. Mona has a lot of style. Sebastian, you know, basically brought the clothes he was going to wear in a backpack. And part of what I liked and why we ended up having him as host is that contrast that they have, that balance uh, that they have, and you know, not only on screen, by the way, but in the relationship. I mean, I think they each kind of complete each other, you know, in the spirit of best couples. You know, mm. when when you really find somebody who kind of kind of completes you, who who fills the gaps that you have, and vice versa. You know, that's you know, those are the relationships that are uh, pleasant to be around. And we're inviting an audience to you know, be, in essence, in a back seat of a car with these two people for three thousand miles. So we wanted we, we wanted to also have a couple who had that kind of glue. And they really do, which I think will be evident anyone watching the program, which isn't to say, by the way, that they don't get on each other's nerves at times. I was about to ask you, like that kind of balance, is there ever friction? Yes. In fact, uh, there is friction. Mona takes a little while to get ready in the morning. Sebastian kind of can throw on his clothes and is ready to go. You know, Mona uh, is uh, someone who needs downtime. You know, so she's very good talking to people. She, She at the same time, she needs to recharge uh, by being off on her own. Sebastian never needs that. He's like the ever ready battery, always ready to interact, always ready to talk. So those are, those are some of the differences that if you're taking a road trip with anybody can begin to, um, uh, annoy each other and they do annoy each other at times. Uh, but that makes the whole thing more real. It's a real couple taking a real trip and, and everything you imagine that to be happens. It sounds like Sebastian and Mona also are reflective of the diversity of Muslims in America to some degree. Sebastian being a convert raised uh, in a tradition other than Islam and Mona being someone who wears hijab. Not all women wear hijab and comes from an immigrant background. That in and of itself, too, is kind of quite a bit of contrast. Yeah, that is. And the diversity element is really evident throughout the entire program. Because we're taking a trip across the United States and we're visiting many communities, the immense diversity of the American Muslim community, which is reflective of Muslims in the world, is apparent. At the end of this thing, the major takeaway of an audience would be you can't anymore like just make a blanket statement that Muslims are this or Muslims are that. They're not. 
I should say that the show is not just about Muslims. I mean, they're on Route 66, and Route 66 is its own kind of wonderful, wacky uh, journey. And our couple fully engages in that journey along the way. And so we also had uh, encountered people who like knew Route 66, like that was their life to know it, had written books about it, who would say, oh, you've got to stop here. Oh, you've got to see this. And so we put those things on the itinerary too, as we were going along. Uh, so we, we also see some of those really kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, things that are, that are really amusing uh, and are unbelievable uh, in their, you know, in their Americana. Had you done this before or was this new for you? It was new for me. I had never done it before. Uh, and I was constantly surprised, uh, not only as we were doing it, but in the planning of the trip. You know, initially, the idea was, hey, we're going to take Route 66. And, you know, I, I knew we were going to hit a couple big towns, big cities along the way. Hey, there's Chicago and we're in St. Louis. And then, you know, we're on to, you know, Santa Fe and L.A. So I'm, I just assumed that we would encounter Muslims at those stops. What I didn't realize was how many Muslim stories we found along the way in places uh, that you wouldn't even imagine Muslims ever being in. For example, in the tribal lands of New Mexico, uh, we found the story of perhaps the first Muslim ever in North America who, was, who came just a few years really after Columbus. Estevanico was a Muslim from West Morocco. He was picked up by Spanish conquistadors who embarked upon this expedition to Mexico City. Their vessel capsized. The entire fleet perished and drowned, except for four individuals. One of them was Estevanico. They would be held for about four years as slaves to this indigenous tribe of Texas but they would actually escape. Estevanico is the one that almost created America. He comes in, he designates this to be uncharted territory, literally opening those gateways for the rest of the world to now filter into what is now North America. This is amazing history that very few of us have heard about. One of the first people to come in was this enslaved African Muslim. Because of his skills as a guide and navigator and a great facility with learning languages, uh, led a small expedition of, of Spanish uh, folks across the United States from Florida all the way to Mexico City. The first probably non-indigenous people to do that. That was, that was a Muslim. And we found that story at the Zuni Pueblo in New Mexico. How did you find that story? When we were in St. Louis, uh, we met with a very eminent a scholar of a Muslim American history named uh, Edward Curtis. We spent the better part of an afternoon with him. Uh, he kind of takes the couple on a tour of a museum and really talks about immigration, Muslim immigration, talks about a number of things about how, how Muslims first came to this country. But he also shared stories of that person and, you know, kind of said, be on a lookout. And so, you know, that became part of our itinerary uh, was to go to that place and learn about him. Did you have any nostalgic moments as you were encountering some of these landmarks? You know, to be honest with you, I was really occupied during the trip. In fact, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing is, I mean, probably more than anybody else, you know, I was the director. So everyone else had downtime at some point, but I really had no downtime because I was always either 
preparing for the next thing we were going to do, uh, getting ready for that, uh, you know, figuring out how we were going to, sh- you know, we were going to places none of us had been before. So, you know, where are we going to set up cameras? How are we going to get this done? Blah, blah, blah. Managing all those logistics or upon leaving a place, you know, writing notes. This is what, you know, to keep track of what happened, what were the good parts, what were the things that were memorable, what things might end up being in the film. And so the funny thing is uh, I've really been experiencing the trip almost for the first time by watching the, the footage, you know, and I'll so many times I'll say, Oh my God, did we actually drive past that? I, I, <laughs> I, I was, I was looking at my laptop. I didn't see it. You know, so, so I missed a lot uh, because I was, I was very much in the uh, production mode. As you describe the drive through middle America at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about some of the divisiveness that we encounter today and, you know, Everywhere you look, people are talking about that, that this is a really divided time. What were the reactions to Mona and Sebastian? To be honest, um, no, we were never really at any place, any length of time, you know what I'm saying, uh, where we might have attracted attention, either positive or negative. You know, we were traveling often two or 300 miles a day. So we were driving and then we were stopping and filming and then back in the car driving again, except for the fact that we were pretty, you know, you can't just show up at these places and throw out cameras. Before you get there, you, you need to say, hey, we're going to be uh, uh, arriving at your restaurant and we want to film. And you have to have people agree or disagree, right? And I can say that only one, uh, uh, one establishment along the way like that said, no, we don't want you. We don't want to have anything to do with Muslims. And that was just one out of maybe five dozen. Uh, so overall, it was very welcoming. I mean, you know, this is the thing, you know, we, in some respects, the, the divisiveness that we feel or see hides uh, a, a spirit Americans have of really Americans just really want to get along with each other. I mean, at heart, we don't want to be divided. We want to get along. And I think that's why the, the current divisiveness that we see is so upsetting to everybody, whichever side you're on. Because we want to believe that our fellow Americans are kind of like on the same page with us and we're on the same journey. And when, when things, uh, even if they're, they're relatively minor, appear to show that that isn't the case, um, uh, then um, it's very painful. Uh, so, so I think that there, there was just largely a spirit of welcoming for most of the places we went and most of the people we met. After the break, I continue my conversation with director Alex Cronemer. His latest film, The Great American Muslim Road Trip, is currently streaming on PBS.org. When we come back, Alex explains the good Muslim, bad Muslim character traps in Hollywood and why it's such a problem. There's this idea of, you know, the good, in quotes, the good Muslim who's portrayed in many of these things. And the good Muslim is usually the one who doesn't practice, is usually the one who also drinks alcohol who also does this and also does that, who's like everybody else. And often the one who is portrayed as being more religious is often the bad guy or often the negative foil. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. 
I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. My dad is Jewish and my mom is Christian. Um, and, you know, I just, I didn't, for various reasons, like find a home in either of those religions. You know, um, yeah, I just, I've always been kind of a seeker and kind of looking for God in various places. I was living in this intentional community in New Mexico, which is an ecumenical, lay led um, spiritual community. And this woman showed up probably the first person to show up in hijab at this community in 40 years or so, and it was Mona. Yeah, I mean, I had just experienced a personal tragedy, and that sent me on my own sort of journey up the mountain to New Mexico, and I was definitely not interested in meeting a man or getting married or anything. And when I met Sebastian, he just became a, a dear friend. You know, she was not looking to have me become Muslim, and I wasn't looking to have her teach me, but just by virtue of our friendship, Mm -hmm. um, it was like the door opened. I think it was the way you practiced, the way you prayed, and the way you held your faith, like, beautifully, but it was sort of this invitation, and our life started unfolding, and my spiritual life started unfolding. And I sort of felt like I was being carried down this river. And it's just energizing and it's beautiful. That is Sebastian Robbins and Mona Haydar. They're talking about his spiritual journey in The Great Muslim American Road Trip, a new film produced by Unity Productions Foundation, currently streaming on PBS. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This week, I'm talking with the film director, Alex Cronimer. As we get back to the conversation, I ask him about the decision to include Sebastian and Mona's personal faith practices in the film and if there are any concerns about furthering misperceptions about what it means to be Muslim. Let's just first of all say that, like most religious adherents in this country, whether you be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or, or whatever, you know, your your degree of religiosity is on a continuum. Some people who identify as Christian may only go to church once or twice a year. Some others may go to church two or three times a week, right? That kind of thing. Same thing for Muslims. Um, people who identify as Muslims, some of them may pray once in a while or maybe not even at all. 
and others are rigorous in their in their uh, practice. Mona and Sebastian are rigorous. You know, they they do meet their five prayers. In fact, we often had to accommodate that in the trip for them to be able to do that. So it's just a, it, and it isn't like they're showing off or they're they're trying to illustrate or they're trying to hide it. I mean, it's just a part of who they are. And um, so these things kind of come out very naturally in the show. Was it important? Um, was it important for you to have two people who were rigorous in their practice? Well, I mean, I mean, ultimately it's television and um, uh, you know, you do, you know, if, if the, if the couple, if the subject, if the characters are supposed to be something, they have to seem like that. Right. Or, or you lose the sense of who they are. So, you know, if we had chosen a uh, two people who didn't practice at all, who, you know, uh, were very um, indistinguishable from just any other person of any other faith or no faith, then, you know, the idea of this being a, a road trip taken by Muslims would be lost, even if they themselves still identified as Muslims, but there was no sense of their engagement with the Muslim community or with the faith then that would be lost in my opinion. So, you know, we did want to have uh, a couple who, who, you know, not only identified themselves as Muslims, but were practicing to some degree. There is this tremendous diversity in the Muslim community, yet so much of the public imagination, the American imagination, tends to focus on the things that are separate or unique or distant from the practices that people see as familiar. And I'm just curious, like how how you wrestle with that um, as, yeah. as a director, as a filmmaker. Mona, let's just pick her out because she is much more, she's the most identifiably typical in quotes Muslim, you know, because she wears hijab and so forth, is so um, not just, you know, kind of completely American, but also just this very hip, uh, progressive person. So seeing a person who is a stereotype breaker, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Who, who, who dresses a certain way, who looks a certain way, but who doesn't fit any of the stereotypes, hopefully becomes a stereotype breaker. So, so, um, you know, in addition to our filmmaking work, we, you know, we do quite a bit of consulting uh, in Hollywood on various television programs and, and movies and such. And, you know, there's this um, uh, idea of, you know, the good, in quotes, the good Muslim who's portrayed in many of these things. And the good Muslim is usually the one who doesn't practice, is usually the one who also drinks alcohol and who also does this and also does that, who's like everybody else, right? Often the 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 one who is portrayed as being more religious is often the bad guy or often the negative foil. Uh, and so there's this othering that we've come to uh, do with Muslims, that they are in a different box. They behave in a different way. They think a different way. And we're trying to break that stereotype down in the way we're telling the story. Growing up, I, for one, heard that there were Muslims in the Midwest, but I had no idea on the backstory. In The Great Muslim American Road Trip, public religion scholar Edward Curtis fills in the blanks. Here's Dr. Curtis guiding Mona and Sebastian on their tour through St. Louis in Episode 1. 
We are so excited for our personalized tour through St. Louis's 150 years of Muslim history. Muslims began to voluntarily immigrate to the United States in larger numbers, you know, after the Civil War. Most of them who came at that time would have been from what many people know as the Middle East, the countries of Palestine, Jordan, but especially Syria and Lebanon. The majority of Syrians who came were actually um, Christian, but there were a number of Muslims. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, uh, there were also people coming from, Muslims coming from Bengal, from Central Asia, Afghanistan, right, from, from Turkey itself, from Bosnia, from the southeastern Europe. And so what was the motivation? What was the driving force that drove well, this immigration? They came for the reason why millions of immigrants came after the Civil War up until World War I. You know, that was mostly for economic opportunity. There was push and there was pull. In most of the places from which they came, there was um, some kind of economic displacement. There just weren't enough jobs. And the United States was in need of cheap labor. So in, in one sense, what happened then is still happening today, right? There's push and pull. People are displaced for one, for one reason or another. People sometimes become refugees and they need a place to land. For example, in the 1990s, thousands of Bosnian refugees came to St. Louis, you know, looking for refuge, looking for a place to establish a community and raise their kids in relative safety and with some degree of economic opportunity. But if you want to know when Muslims first came to St. Louis, the largest population of Muslims before World War II probably came to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair to work here. Mm. So here's a, a map of the fair. Huh. And one of the things that uh, sometimes people forget about the fair is Jerusalem was reproduced at a one-to-one -one scale, the old city of Jerusalem, Al-Quds. And so you see it right in the center there, huh. the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock, it was one-to-one -one scale. And they had the Church of the Holy Sepulcher and the Kotal or the Wailing Wall. It was wow. all right there. And then you look, Morocco's right next door. <laughs> <laughs> My relatives came because of that, because of these fairs, mm. right? And maybe a long-lost relative of yours came, some long-lost cousin. Yeah. But I want to show you where actually most of the Muslims um, from the fair came from. Okay. For the 1904 World's Fair, the organizers imported 1,100 people from Philippines. It's the largest single foreign population. And among their number were hundreds of people from, um, from southern Philippines or the island of Mindanao. And this is where Muslims live. These were called Moros or Moors, Muslims. Huh. They were wildly popular in the fair. They called the Moros semi-civilized. They displayed savages like pygmies at the fair. And then they, they contrasted them with all of the, you know, white culture, which was seen as, as civilized and right. industrial and modern. Right. But, but the Moros and the Muslims in general stood right in between. They were right in the middle. They were wow. semi They got an upgrade. Right. Symbolized. Right. Got an upgrade. I don't know if you know, but I have a song called Barbarian <laughs> about that exact topic. So that's a very sore spot for me. <laughs> if they're civilized, I'd rather stay savage. Barbarians, beautiful and scaring them, earth shaking, rattling, 
Immigration is cut off in the 1920s. The National Origins Act basically cuts off immigration from anywhere where people of color are from. What was the driving force behind that cutoff? The Ku Klux Klan got its wish. One of their main goals was to cut off immigration from non-white people, from non-Nordic people. And it was a very powerful organization at that time. And that law stayed on the books until 1965. It's startling to hear because I came to this country not long after those laws changed. And my family lived in the Midwest, too, including Springfield, Illinois. Tell me how you ended up there. Well, Springfield is one of those places where we stumble across the Muslim community, uh, leaving Chicago, finding out, whoa, there's a mosque in Springfield. Mm -hmm. It's the one segment, the one part of the story where we actually see our couple pray with other Muslims. We don't do that really throughout the rest of the show, but we do it there. And we translate part of the prayer in English on screen because, again, it's to demystify uh, what are Muslims actually doing when they're, you know, when they're bowing their heads when, they're, when, you're, when this Arabic is being said. What are they saying? Well, you know, what they're saying actually is something that any, and I keep using Christian, I know the audience you have is more than Christians, but I'm using that as the, uh, as the kind of benchmark. You know, what Muslims say in their prayer is very much like the Lord's Prayer, almost exactly like the Lord's mm-hmm. Prayer. So just being able to translate that so that that we can demystify uh, that aspect of Muslim life and who Muslims are, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to, you know, what we wanted to accomplish in the, really in all our work, by yeah. the way, not just this film, but that's that's what we're trying to do. And, and it's kind of the first uh, moment in the film where we're seeing that diversity. Remind me of your name? Juan. Juan? Yeah. yeah. And? Juan. Say it. Say it. Nice to meet you, Sebastian. Yeah. My name is Corey. Corey, nice yes. to meet you. And your name? Valerie. Valerie. I uh, joined the University of Illinois at Springfield in 1987. So it's been 34 years in Springfield. My children, all of them grew up here. When I came to America, what was interesting is to meet so many different Muslims from different countries yeah. with different cultural backgrounds, yeah. with their own diversity. I know. And where are you originally from? I'm Bangladesh. I'm in the Army Reserve, in the Corps of Engineers. I was deployed wow. two times in Iraq and two times in Kuwait. Wow. Springfield has something like 25 plus ethnicities, and that's how many different kind of people pray in this wow. mosque. I'm Pakistani by birth. I grew up here. I was five years old when my family came. Okay. But I was in the Navy, uh, 15 years active duty, Um, one tour on a ship to the Middle East, one tour in Afghanistan. Did did the the Taliban target you in any way? I was second in command of a reconstruction team. I went out uh, and about, and they don't want educated Muslims meeting people. So as a Muslim, I was on a target list. I woke up every day and I didn't know if I'd be alive the next day. And I was actually told by one of our interpreters, look, Dr. Siddiqui, you should not go out on, on patrol anymore. And, and I said, I have to go out. We all, we all have to. You know, when you go to some of these smaller communities uh, that can really only support one mosque, you get a huge amount of diversity in that mosque because there's just one mosque. Everyone comes to it. Uh, whereas when you're in some larger places, like here in Washington, D.C., where I live, you know, 
because there's so many more Muslims, you tend to have mosques that that are that represent certain nationalities. Whereas in these smaller places, what, what was always lovely is you you know because it's smaller, everyone goes to that place. So you really see that uh, that melting pot that is uh, world Islam in these environments. I have heard over the last two years lots of critique interrogating the mythology around what it means, who the American dream is intended for. You're using it very intentionally in this production. Tell me what your thinking was as the director, like some of the choices that you made and what that phrase, the American dream, means to you in this project. Well, you know, I mean, uh, that's a really interesting question, you know, in terms of who's the American dream meant for? And, you know, and, and you often sometimes hear the American nightmare for some parts of uh, the American experience. We learn that um, the dreams that people have, uh, we, we actually encounter a few times where people talking to children or, you know, who, who talk about what they want to be. The kids that we have yeah. here today are refugees from Afghanistan. Each one of these kids carries a dream. What do you want to do when you grow older? Awesome. What kind of doctor? You want to work with kids, old people, foot doctor, brain doctor, ear doctor, elbow doctor? Every doctor. Every kind of medicine. Beautiful. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> business girl. Tell me what kind of business you'd like to have. Uh, I like to sell cars. Awesome. Ah, do you like cars? I love cars too. Yeah. I want to do artists. You're in the perfect group to do artist things. How about you? Fire. Firewoman? Firefighter? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Whoa. That's what I used to want to do when I was little. Okay, you. Let's see this. Flip it over. So you have to flip it over and you have to smack my hands. That's what you have to do. Okay? That's the game. A big part is them feeling that this is home for them, that they belong. Five. Oh! <laughs> Too slow. And that whatever they contribute is going to be valued. And we have little kids who want to be all the things that little kids want to be. I mean, it feels trite to say, oh, Muslims are just like everyone else. But in a way, um, it's a message that still is not entirely uh, believed, if even received, by, by a lot of people. Uh, and that's kind of what we learned. In the first episode, when Islam is you know, compared uh, or at least contrasted in some ways with Christianity, especially in talking about Jesus. Did you intend on educating your audience about beliefs that spread from religion to religion? Well, you know, this is actually one of the stereotype-breaking things that, I mean, you know, again, we might imagine that a Muslim would have no interest or even maybe be hostile to a religious figure like Jesus or Mary. But what we there's a moment where the the couple goes to Santa Fe, and they go to the Basilica of Saint Francis because Mona studied Christian ethics uh, at the master's level. Again, something not expected, something you wouldn't think, and she was she had a you know a great fondness for Saint Francis of Assisi. So she they go to this Basilica of Saint Francis, and Mona sits down and has a conversation with the uh, uh, the head rector there. I was in Turkey during the Muslim holiday of Eid to see Mary's house. There were just hundreds and hundreds of people up there. I wondered how come all these Muslims would come on their holiday. Mm. And then I started to read more about how in the Quran, Mary is looked at as one of the purest women. 
It's funny, you know, as a Muslim, people often will ask me what my relationship is to Jesus or Mary, and I just feel such a deep and devoted connection to mm-hmm. them both in their relationship. Oh, yes. You know, like Mary as mother and Jesus as her her son and how, you know, she is this woman in the Quran who is often talked about as just devout and righteous mm-hmm. and blessed. I just feel like she is such an inspiration to me in the way she was tender and loving and devout to God so much so that she could raise a child that could change the entire world. Mm-hmm. My favorite story is Jesus is at a wedding at Cana and he goes to this wedding with his apostles and Mary comes to him and she says, they've run out of wine. And there was a long time when I didn't understand why that would be a concern for her. Mm. And it wasn't until somebody explained to me that hospitality was so important in Jesus' time that if you got a reputation for being hospitable, mm-hmm. they were going to kick you out of town. Mm. And so Mary was coming out of concern mm. for the couple, this young couple just getting married, this young couple who was running the risk of, of starting life in a tragedy. Mm. And you described her as that tender woman. Yes, oh God, yes. What love drives people to do that? Mm. I want to be that kind of person. And what they end up doing is they, they both share their reverence for Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, and, and, and Mona's expressing hers from her Muslim point of view, and he's expressing his, and it's very similar. And they both kind of just, it's, you know, kind of feed off each other's energy and enthusiasm for the topic. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. My conversation with film director Alex Cronomer continues as he describes how some things are changing in Hollywood when it comes to representation. Stay with us. Green Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Alex Cronomer and Michael Wolf were journalists who teamed up back in 1999 to start a new media nonprofit to produce films and media that would educate audiences to counter bigotry and promote healthy pluralism. Over the years, several of their productions have received critical acclaim, including an Emmy nomination. But making the case for films that would educate American audiences about Islam or Muslims was not so easy in those early days. When we came with our very first program 20 years ago, Muhammad Legacy of the Prophet, we initially were literally, I mean, quite literally laughed out of the room. It was like, there's no way that... uh, anyone's going to want to watch a show about the life of Muhammad. Just forget about it. You know, our audiences don't care. They're not interested. Well, you know, 20 years later, well, not only have we had, you know, 10 plus programs uh, and not just us, other people produce programming too on, on the Muslim story for many different platforms. Can you describe just from your perspective, having done this work for as long as you have, what are some of the big changes that you've seen? Well, you know, I don't think our organization, Unity Productions Foundation, can take full credit 
for some of the cultural changes that have happened in Hollywood. But we have been working in Hollywood for more than a decade and working with many, many writers and many producers of shows to try to get uh, uh, a, you know, to break that narrative that Muslims are either terrorists or they're victims of, of, uh, of an abusive husband. I mean, those are kind of the two things that we saw all the time. Or they're the quote-unquote good Muslim who really has abandoned the faith, and that's what makes that person quote-unquote a good Muslim. And we've, we've worked really hard to try to see representations of Muslims in, in a more realistic and a diverse way. We interacted frequently with a show called Grey's Anatomy, and Grey's Anatomy began putting on Muslim doctors or Muslims in various circumstances. There's the show um, Transplant um, that features a Syrian doctor. So, uh, and then many other shows uh, that have shown even even Muslims. Um, I, there was the HBO show called The Night of, uh, which had a uh, Riz Ahmed, who now is kind of big news actor, but I think that was one of his first roles, plays uh, somebody who's mistakenly arrested for a murder. Uh, and, you know, he, he's not a squeaky clean character. He's, you know, he's not a, he's, he's a very flawed person, but it's a very nuanced and human portrayal of somebody different than what you might've seen 10 years earlier, you know, where we've been just like this crazed uh, Quran uh, quoting crazy kind of person, right? Now it's, a, these are human beings. So that's been a, we, we have seen this cultural shift happen in, the Hollywood space. And, you know, in the work that we're doing, you know, 20 years ago, there was, we were the only people making programming that was like the program that we do, you know, telling the Muslim story. And now there's many more people doing that. And there's many more opportunities to learn that story. So we're, you know, we are seeing a change. So there is progress. And in a, in a strange way, I think the Trump administration helped that because helped it in the sense that Trump really required people to take a stand. I mean, he took such a strong stand in one direction that people who were on the fence had to decide where they were on that issue. I was on an airplane when the Muslim man was announced. I was on an airplane on a cross-country flight. When I landed, that had been news for about two or three hours. I had no idea. I come out of the airport and I walked into this mass of people demonstrating. And at first I was, you know, just glimpsing a few of the signs. I mean, it was all... Um, you know, white people, you know, demonstrating. And at first, just glancing, you know, my first glance, some of the signs, I thought it was some kind of anti-Muslim protest for some reason. But then I suddenly realized that wasn't that at all. It was people protesting the ban. Mm. And, and that was new. You know, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, you, know, during, you know, other times when things would happen, it didn't, it didn't require people to really say, I believe this or I don't believe this. I am for the civil rights of uh, Muslims or I'm not for them. I mean, people were on the fence, but many people became, you know, advocates. They began to uh, recognize. And I think that's why we've seen some of this cultural shift in the media also happen, just the way that the topic is covered. I remember having a conversation, uh, you know, as I said, we did quite a lot of consulting with producers and writers and so forth. And I remember having one with somebody who really, uh, who was the producer of a very popular television program, I won't say which one, but um, who really was expressing a deep amount of regret uh, for, for he, what he believed was his contributions to Islamophobia by uh, 
telling story, you know, creating a scenario in a story of a you know mean, bad Muslim terrorist who was a terrorist because he was a Muslim. It felt like, you know, this was maybe not the right thing to do. So I feel like, you know, sometimes I, in these conversations, I, I talk a lot about, well, we're trying to show the mainstream America, this, that, and the other thing. But we're also uh, often, at least for me, I'm often very mindful of the fact that we're speaking to young people, Muslims, you know, who, um, who need, who struggle with their identity and who need things that can affirm who they are as people. Uh, and it also explains if you look at our library of films, we've done so many different topics and, you know, stories about women, stories about leaders, stories about average people, you know, all kinds of things, because we really wanted to, um, not just for an audience who's not Muslim, but for an audience, particularly a younger audience who is, show the diversity and show that you can be a woman, you can be of this descent or that descent, you can be a very practicing or a less practicing person, but still have that identity and 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 be whole uh, in your in your sense of self. So that's always been a big part of my personal interests and thoughts and motivations for doing the work that I do. Alex, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for this uh, opportunity to talk with you and speak to your audience. Um, I've been a fan of Interfaith Voices for many years, and I'm really kind of uh, very uh, excited and uh, grateful to finally be on the show. <laughs> so thank you for having us. Alex Cronemer is the co-founder of Unity Productions Foundation and the director and producer for The Great Muslim American Road Trip. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kimberly Winston, Richa Karmakar, Kevin McCarthy, and myself. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.